Do you need to change? And if so, can you even change? What kind of change would be necessary if, if even you did need to change? You see, many today are, are skeptical that, that anyone can even change. Right? Popular voices tell us that we should accept who we are internally and just adapt our living accordingly to who we are on the inside. It's seen by many as, as foolishness, as unnecessary to try and fundamentally change the way that we are. Others believe that change is actually possible, and so they, they search for all sorts of different kinds of ways to try and carry out that change. Some take stock in medicine. Many would say that if, if each person can take just the right pill, it would dramatically decrease or even eliminate all people's mental illnesses and behavioral complications today. Some would, would maybe take stock in government. They would say that government is the answer to the change that we need. We need better leaders. We need better policy. We need more regulation. This is the key to changing people in society today. Others who, who maybe have a more religious background, they may tell us to always do that which is best. Do what is good. Think right thoughts. You know, avoid the bad. Some would say, have, have positive thinking. Positive thinking is powerful for you to change. So what do you think? Is any change even possible for people? Can they fundamentally change? And what kind of change is necessary? What does the Bible say about these things? So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. That will be on page 906 in your pew Bibles. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we, we just say that, that Bible there in front of you is a gift from us to you. You can take that home with you. So page 906 on the Pew Bible in front of you. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. And what I want for us to consider this morning is this. How can I be, or how am I, a changed person today because Jesus was raised from the dead? What difference does the resurrection make in what I did yesterday. In other words, I'm asking you, how does the resurrection change your life? Does it control what you think, how you feel, what you do every single day? Jesus' resurrection gives new life and new light. That is our central truth for this morning. Jesus' resurrection gives new life and new light. 
And as we come to this passage this morning, I think it's worth trying to put ourselves in the disciples' mindset, trying to think kind of how they were thinking up to this point in time. That way we can really get a better grasp of of what's actually going on here. So what would it have been like to be one of the twelve in this situation? I mean, imagine yourself walking with Jesus for, for just over three years probably by now. You've done almost everything with him. You've shared meals. You've discussed the, the most important matters of life. You've sat under his instruction. You've watched Jesus up close and personal to this point. You've, you've seen him perform miracles. You've seen him heal the blind, calm a storm with just a word. You've seen him feed 5,000 people from just a few loaves. You've even seen him raise your friend from the dead. This man exercises authority that, that you have just never seen before. And yet at the same time, he bleeds this inexpressible compassion that you've also never seen before. His eyes are a sermon. You've never heard anyone talk the way that he does, with such conviction, with such authority, with such kindness towards people. And you've grown to believe yourself that this man, Jesus, he knows you better than anyone else knows you. Better than even you, yourself, know you. And one night after enjoying a meal with Jesus and singing hymns to God, you follow him to this garden to pray. And it seems that he is deeply disturbed in his inner being. And it's at this moment, whenever in the garden the Roman authorities come and they take Jesus away and they take him to court. And he's tried unjustly in this court. He's found guilty and he's sentenced to death. And in just a matter of hours, he's taken away and hanged on a tree to die. The teacher that you first sought to base your entire life upon is now dead. The body of the man that you thought would change the world as you know it is now a lifeless corpse sitting in a tomb, dead and decaying, no pulse, lifeless. And there, right in this moment, that is where we get chapter 20. So if you would read with me here in chapter 1, I'll be reading through verses 1 and 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to get Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
And then when Simon Peter came, following him, he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was now lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she sat, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away... Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. In this passage, we see specific people changed dramatically by what they discover at the empty tomb. We see there in verse 1, Mary Magdalene, And we know that she's one of the faithful women who was at the foot of the cross whenever Jesus died. She watched Nicodemus and Joseph bury Jesus. And on the Sabbath day, it is now past, and so she leaves the house, and we see in the text, in the early hours of the day. And so it's so early that it's even dark outside. It's before sunrise, and Mary is devastated. She's devastated because, number one, her Lord has been crucified. And number two, that she discovers where the massive stone was that sealed Jesus' body has now been removed. So verse two, she goes quickly to tell Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And verses three and four, on hearing the news, these disciples run. And they run. They didn't just grab their shoes. They didn't grab anything. We see that John records here that he takes the early lead. It's most likely because he's probably younger than middle-aged Peter. In verse 6, John wants us to know that Peter got there after him. And just in case you forgot, verse 8, John reminds us that he won the race there. But the fact that Mary's alarm sets these two sprinting to the tomb in the way that they do indicates that they share her urgency of what's going on here. Mary explains that they have taken the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. 
Verse 5, John goes through the trouble to, to tell us what he did there. If you look there in verse 5, he, he stoops in low enough to see the linen cloths lying in the tomb, but he doesn't go in. Now, John is probably thinking, why in the world would somebody unwrap and expose Jesus' dead and decaying body before they would move him? Who would do such a thing like this? You know, three days later, three days earlier, these disciples here, they were expecting Jesus to change the world. And the only thing that they can really think about it now is how to preserve Jesus' desecrated remains. They don't know where Jesus is. And the reality of what's taking place here is this. Both John and distraught Mary are in the dark. They're in the dark. And they're unable to perceive what has actually happened. And, and I really don't want us to miss this moment here in the text because I think it's extremely helpful for us. You see, these disciples have been longing for change. They want something new. They expected change. But one of the reasons that they miss what's happening here in the passage is that they misunderstand what Jesus actually came to change. Do you see that? They misunderstand what Jesus came to change. For them, the change that really needed to take place was outside of them. It was the external matters of life that needed to change. They needed to be different. The Jews especially expected at this point a military leader to come as their Messiah to take them in power and glory and establish this new military reign. They wanted their outside situation to be different. And we often think this same way. We often think that if only my outside circumstances could be different, I would be better off. What do you want most to change about yourself right now? I mean, is it your health? Is it a diet? Maybe you want to be married. You just want to start a family. You just want your finances in order. Right, so, so these things are well and good, and we know from the Scriptures that Jesus cares about our needs. But my friends, this is not the fundamental change that Jesus came to change. Jesus came to change something dramatically different. See, picking back up with the passage, some of us who are, who are familiar with Peter's character, we, we, we aren't that surprised to see what Peter does here. Right, so Peter may be second place in the race, but he's certainly the first one inside the tomb. And he crouches to clear the hole of the door, and immediately Peter goes inside the tomb. And picking up there in verse 6, when Simon Peter came following him, he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. 
And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So for these who were walking at first in darkness, they now see a light. They see a light and are changed whenever they hear God's interpretation of the resurrection. Do you see that there? So there in in verse 5, John is outside of the tomb. He stoops to look in, he glances around, but the contrast is whenever these disciples make their way into the tomb, and it's there that they make a more careful study. And the belief comes from whenever they remember the prophecy of what was spoken. He believes there is change because they think about the resurrection in light of what God has said about the resurrection. Jesus must rise from the dead. Perception. What John understands from the scripture convinces him that Jesus his body has not been stolen. And this is the point in verse 9 here. The resurrection changes us by bringing light to our darkness. Before the resurrection, we see that John did not understand what was going on. Not only he, but all of the rest of the disciples in this story. The disciples were incapable of understanding the resurrection. And John wants to make it very clear in this gospel account that the resurrection is at the very center of Christians knowing that their faith is real. So if you turn back, hold your place there, turn back to John chapter 2 with me. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. And this is Jesus' words whenever the Pharisees question and ask him, what sign do you give us to show us these things that you are doing actually has any weight? And so Jesus is gone and cleansed the temple, and the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we see there that people did not yet believe in Jesus the way that they should believe in Jesus until his resurrection. And Jesus tells, us that the, tells the Pharisees that the sign that he will give to show, that, show to all people that Jesus has the authority to do these things is that he will lay down his life willingly and that in three days he will raise it up again. And when Jesus gave his body up to be crucified and to be raised up, Whenever he was destroyed beneath the wrath of God for sinners like you and me, suffering for what we deserve, that is when he purchased a people for himself. And now those people who he has purchased, 
The Spirit is now given to them whenever they believe. And they are now to live as God's temple here on earth. So John now says, in light of that, oh, now I get it. Jesus must rise from the dead. And then in verse 10, we see there that they go back to their homes. And doubtless, they go to tell the other disciples. And we see that from this day forward, in the Scriptures, Christians have resolved to gather together to worship. It is on Sunday, today, whenever the church especially gathers, because we give our time and we give our attention and our devotion to the reading of the Scripture, to the hearing of God's Word, to the preaching of God's Word, to the singing of God's Word, And Christians spend their Sunday mornings differently than the rest of the world because of the resurrection. This is why the holy day of the Sabbath on Saturday for the Jews has shifted to Sunday whenever God's people gathered. Because Sunday is the day of new creation. Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And every Sunday that we gather, we gather to celebrate the resurrection of our risen Lord. And we show that we are different from the rest of the world by spending our Sunday mornings differently. So y'all, if the work of Jesus does not lead you to live a life in such a way that people know you first and foremost as being devoted to Jesus then you are not living as a biblical Christian. We are not living as biblical Christians whenever people don't notice anything different about us. Christians in the Bible are people who have been changed by the work of Christ. And they are known for their costly devotion to the Savior. So if you would turn back to verse 11 here, we see kind of a second story unfolding here for Mary. So Mary stands weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? And she says to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turns around and sees Jesus standing. Now this shift in Mary being at the tomb is is pretty interesting because we see some similarities, right, between what we saw here with John. We see that she first gets to the tomb and she's standing outside of the tomb. And she does not understand. She's in the dark. And whenever she goes in, she sees two angels. And, and we would think that seeing two angelic beings clothed in white would, would cue us in that something is going on here. Right? But Jesus, or Mary continues to weep. And this shows us that her sorrow is deep. Right? In her mind, Jesus' body has been stolen. And so she weeps inconsolably. 
In verse 13 there, the angels say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? My friends, do you hear the shock in that question? Because think about this. That is not a very smart question to ask if Jesus is dead. But the angelic servants of God know way too much about reality to ask dumb questions. And so we see that Mary responds, repeating her ignorance, but then in verses 14 and 15, she sees the one that she's been looking for. There in 14 and 15, she turns around and she sees Jesus, but he doesn't look like he did at any other time that she'd seen him. He certainly doesn't look like the shredded and pierced and mangled Jesus that she saw hanging on a tree. And even whenever he speaks to her, she doesn't recognize him. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? And she responds, thinking that that Jesus is, is a gardener, begging this gardener to disclose the place where Jesus' body has been taken. You know, Jesus knows that Mary here is, is looking for him. And, and the point is this, of what's going on here. Mary is weeping because she's looking for the wrong kind of Jesus. Her perception, Mary's perception of needed change, keeps her blind to the change that Jesus actually came to do. She's miserable because she doesn't know anything about the change that Jesus really came to bring. But we see that God would have her see more in that empty tomb. And God would have us see more in that empty tomb than what Mary is seeing. You see, Mary says more than she really understands whenever she addresses Jesus as gardener. Because you see, it's, it's fitting that all of this takes place in a garden. It's appropriate that Jesus was buried in a garden. Because death was born in a garden. You see, the first Adam, whenever he came, he failed as a gardener. He sinned, and he cursed the living with thorns and thistles and graves. And he, along with the rest of us, in him, have sinned against God. And we have been taken away from God's holy presence because, listen, this is the truth, that every single one of us are too sinful to stand in the holy presence of God. We from birth are now separated from God. And God says that we are incapable of manufacturing any sort of way within ourselves to get ourselves back to Him. And therefore, God tells us that the greatest change that we need is not a better diet. The change that we need is not more positive thinking. It's not better government. It's not better social structures. The change that God says that we need is a new life. We need a new life. We need to be brought back to God because we 
are in trouble. In the garden, whenever man was cast out from the presence of God, we see in Genesis 3, 24, God puts angels to stand guard with a flaming sword so that no human can go back there and eat of the tree of life and live forever as enemies of God, lest we be consumed by his rage against our rebellion. And the same idea of angels guarding the holy place of God we see is is further developed in Leviticus whenever God, after redeeming a people for himself, the Jews, out of Egypt, he graciously makes a way for himself to be with his people. And that took one priest, the high priest of Israel, every year to go in to offer atonement for the people. And this high priest, he had to follow the law to the very letter. Otherwise, he would die in the Holy of Holies. And when he would go in, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And there on the mercy seat, we see described in Exodus 25, there are two angels still guarding the holy presence of God, reminding us that there is no way back to God in and of ourselves. But these angels here in John chapter 20 have an entirely different posture. These angels ask this woman who is not dead, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping, woman? The risen Lord Jesus himself asks this favored sinner who is not the high priest of Israel, who has has not brought blood into the Holy of Holies, who is nonetheless near the Holy God, they ask, why are you weeping? Weep no more, Mary. Behold, your lamb, Mary, your lamb has been slain. And the angels, these angels have a new assignment. They are no longer standing guard. They have a new message for Mary. No one is standing guard to keep Mary and to keep Christians away from entering into the presence of God because our lamb has been slain for us. Eden is being reclaimed. Recommunion with God is being restored. You see, this is what God's doing. This is the change that we need to take place. We need to be brought back to God. And if you look there in verse 14, take a closer look here, and as Mary turns around, she sees Jesus standing, which really gets at the very heart of why we are called to no longer weep, why Mary here is called to no longer weep, because John, the same writer of this story, is going to make this point again in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, whenever John is there in the throne room and nobody is found worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals, the elder says to him, weep no more. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And it says that John turns and there he sees a lamb standing. So these angels say to Mary, weep no more. 
This elder says to John, weep no more. Why? Because your lamb who was slain is now standing on your behalf. Del Rey, do we know that our lamb is standing for us this morning? Gordy, you have a lamb standing for you. Ben Hamilton, you have a lamb standing for you. Adam, you have a lamb who was slain and who is now standing on your behalf so that you may now go into the holy presence of God. My friends, our lamb, our lamb has been slain and is now standing for us. But Mary doesn't get what's going on here. You see, Mary doesn't get it, and, and we, quite, quite frankly, wouldn't get what's going on here. I wouldn't get it. Because, you see, we need more than just promises from God. We need more than just decent memories whenever it comes to the change that needs to take place. Because sin and death block our belief. We don't believe because we don't hear. We don't actually hear the words of the shepherd the way that they're meant to be heard. And we won't hear the words of the shepherd until he calls us by name. You see, Jesus promised in chapter 10, verse 11 in John, that he would lay down his life for the sheep. But he also said in verse 3 of chapter 10 that his sheep would not follow him until he called them by name. And only then, only at that point, was whenever the people would turn and follow their shepherd. And just as Jesus earlier stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and he had spoken words, it wasn't until he said the corpse's name that Lazarus came out of the death and darkness. And the exact same thing that happens right there whenever Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave happens here in chapter 20 whenever Jesus says Mary's name. Period. New life. New perception. New understanding. Despair dies. Joy is born, and only the type of joy that comes from a new resurrection. And Jesus says, Mary says, my teacher. And she evidently embraces him. As we look in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And you guys, I do not want us to miss the fact that we would be more likely to defy gravity and float out of this building into outer space than to actually 
overemphasize the earth-shattering, universe-changing truth of what Jesus says here whenever he says, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. You see, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, has called the God, has called God his Father. He's called him my Father. And whenever Jesus dies, Adam's death, our death that we deserve, and crushes Satan's head, and he frees slaves from sin and rises from the dead, he now says to his beloved, my father is now your father. You see, before the cross, Jesus called believers disciples, he called them servants, he even called them friends. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection, he calls his people, brothers. What happened in that tomb has changed everything because Jesus' resurrection secures every single promise that God has ever spoken for us. Jesus has atoned for the sins of his people who are now adopted by the blood of the Lamb. And what was needed for people to be born again, to be born into a new family, has now been exacted by Jesus' resurrection. It has been accomplished because the resurrection changes us because the resurrection creates new life in us. Jesus gives people faith by changing them from children of this world to be children of God, children of this world who first hated God, who did not listen to God, who wanted to do their own thing, to now children who love God and who want to obey what He has said and who love His Word and who cherish His Word. And this is the thought that John never gets over in his writings. You see, I hope that we would never get over this. The fact that John writes, what great love, what great love has been shown to us that we might How in the world can we be called children of God? Well, we now know. We know because there is new creation power in that empty tomb. Power that brings light out of darkness and brings life out of death. That is the message that Jesus sends Mary to tell the other disciples about. That is the message that Jesus sends his people to tell the world about. The resurrection changes things. And so my question for you this morning is this. Do you need to change? And what kind of change do you think you need? Can you change? And the answer to that question is yes, you can change. But the fact is, is that where you're going to find that change is very different than any of us would have ever thought. But thanks be to God that God has spoken and showed us that we don't need just behavior modification. We actually need new life, the new life that the resurrection gives So have you seen him? Does the resurrection 
change you? Do you know that it has changed you? People will not and people cannot change themselves. The Bible does not show us a self-help, self-save gospel. The Bible gives us a bloodied cross and an emptied tomb as the way in which that we will be restored to God. That is what we most need. It is the new light and the new life that the resurrection brings that can actually change you. And so if you are not a Christian this morning, if you have not seen evidences of God's grace of change in your life, and you are not living for Jesus, but you're living for yourself, then my plea with you this morning is to ask God to give you resurrection change, to help you to believe that Jesus' sacrifice was for you, to know the power of the resurrection and to know what it means to put to death the deeds of the body so that we may live. And if you are a Christian, my friends, the way that Paul tells us we ought to think about that is in Romans 6, if we have been united in a death as Jesus has died, we will most certainly be united in a resurrection like his. And so for one who has died who's been set freed from sin, sin should no longer reign in their mortal bodies. And so if you are a Christian, then understand that this power to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to actually live in obedience to Jesus, it does not lie in your greatest resolve. It lies in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and we are now united with him. Consider those words this morning. Delray, my prayer for us is that we would be a people who exult and know the resurrection change that Jesus has brought for his people. I pray that this change would be different and that we would be different from the rest of the world. Praise God for his word to us and for what he has done for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. And we know that you are now commanding all men everywhere to repent and to believe this good news. So Father, grant us grace to further believe this good news all the more, to turn from our sins, to turn from self, and to trust in the work of Christ, and to know the power of the resurrection. Lord, we pray for your help. We so desperately need it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.